Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. We're going to jump into a message right now that I'm going to call We the Church. That has been sort of a refrain that we've come back to in this new vision, We the Church. That is, you don't go to church, you are. We are the church. We are part of this family, this body that God has been uh, working together, right? We are working ourselves out of a consumer mindset that says, I want to come, I want to get what I need, and then I want to go home. And if the church isn't providing for me, well, then I'll just go shopping and I'll find one that does. We want to move out of a consumer mindset into a discipleship mindset that says, I am a part of this thing. And so if the church is lacking, could it be that God has positioned me to step up or to rise up into that? Could it be that we have to grow, that we need to lean in in unity and push into areas that God wants us to grow into? We the church, I'm calling it, we the church all rise. We the church all rise. Now, uh, some of this is from a message that I preached back in August, right before we went from two campuses to one, right on the, like on the eve of that, I preached some of this message here at Park Street. And I want to go back there this morning and do some of that. But then I want to take some new ground, some new application for what it means to say, we the church all rise. Okay? So we're going we're gonna to start. We're going to talk about unity. The theme of the day is in unity. We're going to talk about three different kinds of unity. An easy unity. Like the kind where it's easy to be united when your team is winning, right? You go to a bar, you go to somebody's house, you go, you go to the stadium, and your team is winning. You end up high-fiving strangers, right? If the stakes are high enough, you end up like hugging perfect strangers because your team is winning and you're united in the celebration of that. I'd call that an easy unity. When your team isn't winning, stuff starts to break down. Right? You start fighting, you start wondering who needs to be fired, you start celebrating people that do get fired, all of that. It's uh, a disintegration of, that comes from an easy unity, and it reveals a thin unity. That's a second kind of unity, a thin one. When stuff starts to fall apart, thin unity is revealed. I remember, again, my college soccer team as a, uh, a freshman jumping in, and the upperclassmen... Uh, were not the kind of guys who like uh, went down and raised up the whole team. They led the way in kind of backbiting so that if you made a mistake, man, they barked and they barked hard. And it wasn't a way of like calling you up into better and holding you accountable. It was just a way of squashing. There was a lot of fighting on that team. And it, it actually caused me to walk away from soccer. I uh, loved soccer. And that experience made me walk away for a year. And I came back later. But that was a thin unity. That when stuff got rough, uh, we got fractured. And then there's a deep unity. A unity that holds together through good and bad, through the easy and the rough, celebrations and the sorrows. We proclaim this kind of unity when people get married. right? When people, uh, the traditional vows are... I will be yours. 
in all the different days of our life, in sickness and in health, in joy and in sorrow, in uh, riches and in poverty. Like, I am yours through all of it. And I think that's the kind of unity that God is calling us as the church to. But what would it look like for us as the church to live with this kind of unity? I want to open up into Romans 15, verses 5 through 7. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. We're going to throw it up on the screen. This is a picture of unity. Paul writes, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Let's pray. We'll jump into this. Father, we love you. We love your word. We lean on your word. We stand on your word. We cling to your word. Right now, would you give us ears to hear you, what you're doing in our body. Spirit, we give you freedom to crack open places that maybe we've shut off to you. I pray that there would be a spirit of um, unity and generosity instead of defensiveness and instead of separation. Would you open us up this morning as we dig into what uh, unity looks like and how we want to follow you into that uh, in uh, today and the days ahead at Damascus Road. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So in John 17, Jesus prays what has been called the high priestly prayer, right? Just before he's arrested, just before he's taken and beaten uh, and then murdered, Jesus prays this prayer for us. In John 17, verse 11, he says, I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. He's talking about his disciples. I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. So he's talking about the unity that Jesus had with the Father. And so I want them to have that. I want my followers to have a unity like you and I have enjoyed unity. And then he goes on in John 17, 20 and 21. He says, I do not ask for these only. It was like those sitting with him, the people following him in that day. He says, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. Like that's generation by generation by generation by generation down. That passes on to us. He's praying for us right now that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us so that the world may know that you have sent me. Jesus prayed for us. And he prayed that we would be united. It's like he anticipated the need for unity. And so now here in Romans 15, Paul is praying for unity. It's not, uh, just as a reference again, I pointed this out in August. In Romans, starting in chapter 12, Paul spent two verses talking about um, developing a Christian mind. He spent six verses talking about how to view ourselves and encourage others. He spends 13 verses on a call to love, how important it is to love others well. How the church relates with the state, he spent seven verses. And now Paul 
turns and he starts to talk to Christians about how we're called to love one another when they do not think or behave like we do, right? When we're different. And he spends 35 verses on all of it. All of verses, all of chapters 14 and 15. So this is important to Paul, right? Unity is important. It's insanely important. And here's a key. The unity that Jesus prays for and that Paul urges is not a unity that we create. It's a unity that we are handed. We are given. And it echoes this, uh, these verses in Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. I, therefore, this is Paul again, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. We are brought into something. We are united by Jesus and who He is and what He's done, what He, through the Spirit, continues to do even now. We are given unity. And what is our job? What is our part? To maintain it. To maintain it. To not break it. To keep it and nurture it and to live according to it. That's not always an easy unity. There are times where everything is working to pull us apart, and we need to fight to maintain the unity together. This has been what God has been doing since the beginning. Since the time of creation, He has been about building His people. In creation, you can see God walking with Adam and Eve. like he's, These are my people. These are the people I'm doing life with, I'm walking with. And then things break, and God comes back again in Exodus. Let my people go. I want them free so they can worship me, so they can be my people. In Genesis 12, he comes back again, and he says, Abraham, I want you to go. I want you to follow me. I want you to leave your people, and I'm going to grow my people out of your faithfulness. And the generations that get passed down will grow as my people. In the prophets, there's this call like, I will be your God and you will be my people. And then the church in Acts is this manifestation of that. It is the living, breathing body of Christ, right? We are collectively the bride. We are collectively uh, married to Jesus. We are so uh, gathered into relationship that he uses this metaphor like a bride together, pulled in. We are his people. And my people is about belonging. My people is about the church, this body, this family, a chosen people who were far away, who have been brought near by what Jesus did. This is what we talk about when we say, we, the church. We, the church. That we reflect the glory of God. Each and every one of us. Each and every one of us. I love 2 Corinthians 3, 17 through 18. It says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. 
And we all, I love this so much, we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of God are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. That you can look at one another and see the glory of God as unveiled faces. Like we walk around, Moses had these encounters with God where it was so rich and his face actually glowed. So he wore a veil to cover it up so that people wouldn't just be shocked. And we walk around and we say, we don't, we don't have to wear the veil anymore. We don't have to wear the veil. Some people have said that uh, as Moses met with God, his face glowed. As time went on, it faded. So he put a veil over to cover it. Like, because he felt like he needed to be seen as super spiritual. We don't have to fake it. So over and over and over, we unveil ourselves. And you know what you see in one another. You see the glory of God. And we are growing in reflections of his glory. As we grow, we do a better job. Like a smudged up mirror still reflects, right? You clean the mirror and man, you can see so much more. We are growing. We are not a perfect reflection, but as we grow, we gain a glorious image. I love that. We get to do that together. There is a unity and diversity that is woven through and not an accident in the church. That we are called to be one, and we are called to be different, and yet one, and yet different. Yeah? Galatians 3, 27 and 28 says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Like you're coming from all different places, but we're coming into Christ. And he says, There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And then going back to Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, just to, just to repeat it again. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. We're called to unity. And then Paul switches his tone, and he throws a but in there. Ephesians 4, 7, but. We're called to one. Oneness in the body, but. Grace was given to each. He says grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And if you skip forward to verse 11, it says he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. It says in verse 7, grace was given to each one. And then in verse 11, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to each one something here in these five. Each one has some of these going on. Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. 
Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Paul says we are one, and yet God gives grace to each one. That's every one of you sitting in here in Christ. He has woven into your DNA, I believe, one of these five, or more than one of these five. He, Paul identifies the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the pastors and the teachers. What is it saying? We all get down in service. We all use the gifts that God has given us, the DNA that he has woven into us to serve, to uh, build up, to equip the body. That means if you don't know how God has wired you and you're not serving in the body, we are missing for it. When we put out a call to serve in kids, you might not even feel like that's your gifting, but we do it because we all serve in the body. It is so important that you know how God wired you because your contribution is valuable. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers, we all get down and we all rise. We've been given these gifts to build the church. All of us, I think, need to grow in all five of these. I think there's a common call. So I, I, I have recognized, like I'm predominantly wired as a pastor teacher. Okay, If you break those five up, the, uh, the apostle is the one that's looking to break new ground. He asks the question, are we going into the new places that God is calling us? Right? The prophet is the one who is focused in on what is the Lord saying to us and how do we respond to that? Prophets have this keen ability to, spend, to, to sense what the Spirit is doing and to share that then. Prophets hear from God and respond to Him. Evangelists have this power to connect people, especially the ability to connect people with God. Right? Pastors ask the question, are the people of God being cared for? Are we caring for one another? And teachers, teachers ask the question, are, like, are we digging into the truth? Are we clinging to the truth? Do we know the truth? Are we living out of the truth? You see how all five of those are critical. And all five of those, I think, are ways that we can all grow. And yet, to each one of us, God is going to say, especially, this is going to come easy for you. Because of, because of what I've woven into you, this one is going to be way more natural. Now, I'll be honest with you. In the past couple of years, I think God has put me in a phase to say, I'm calling you to be an apostle. I'm calling you uh, to lead the church into places where it has not yet been. That's not natural for me. Naturally, I love the pastor-teacher combo. To step into new territory for me um, can be daunting, can be unnatural, can be intimidating. And yet God is saying, like Moses, when Moses said, oh, please send somebody else. There are tons of people who are way more gifted. And God says, I don't care. You do it. You're the one I'm calling. And all of these, I think God calls all of us. But there are specific ways where he calls each of us. Are you with me with that? 
Now, here are a couple of bummers, and it's going to get personal. What? Yeah. That's going to be good. A couple of bummers. We've kind of shut up the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists in the church. And we've settled for pastors and teachers. And say, those are gifts that, that were locked into the then and there. And they've gone to sleep. And we'll be content right now with pastors and teachers. And I think we have a church that highlights pastors and teachers, that um, elevates pastors and teachers, and that uh, relies only on pastors and teachers. And I think that's part of the problem, that we, we don't function like the church. We function like the pastors and teachers give you what you need. That's not how we're called to operate. So if we shut up the evangelists and we shut up the prophets and we shut up the apostles, I think we're going to have less than what God has called us to like woefully less, right? So we, the church, want to wake up the apostles and we want to wake up the prophets and we want to wake up the evangelists and we want to wake up the pastors and the teachers. We want all five of these moving. Here's the second bummer. We've really restricted the roles of women. If we shut up the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists, and then we tell women that you can't be pastors and teachers. What have we done to 50% of the church? I don't like it. That's a bummer to me, would be one way to say it. Now, hear me out here. I think the church has done this because... We love the Bible, and the Bible seems to say that women should not operate as pastors and teachers. We love it. We hold the Bible as our final authority in all matters of faith and life. We don't get to say, I know the Bible says, but we don't get to say that. We don't want to say that. We hold dearly to the word of God. As God has given us his word, we value it and we honor it and we respect it and we follow it. I just don't think we've really fully understood it. If the Bible's clear teaching is hard to take in, we will still do it. If it goes against the pull of culture, we will still follow it. We will follow the Bible, but here's the tension, is that we want to read the Bible well. Not just quickly, not just easily, not take it as the first passing glance and say, oh, that must be what it means. It seems so clearly to say this. I'm just going to understand it in my day right here for now. We want to read it well, and that means understanding the context. That means not simply reading and plopping it into our culture as the first step of application. What was going on when it was written is a very important question. What is being said in the greater context of these verses? Because no verse sits by itself. They're all wrapped up and woven together. So what's going on around it? Some teachings, uh, some teachings in the Bible are universal. They apply to all times, through all cultures. 
That's true. And where they do, we will. But some, teacher, or some teachings were culturally driven. Something was going on that led to a specific teaching in a specific day, in a specific place. And there's something to be learned. We just don't apply it in the same way. Here's a classic example. Hang with me here. 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 14 says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Some translations use the word silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So verse 11 says, Women learn quietly with all submissiveness. Verse 12 says, there's no teaching for women over men, no authority of a woman ever over a man. And we close it up and we say, well, the Bible says it. I believe it. Let's do it. But honestly, what do we do with that? A biblical argument is made that this is true and applies today. But we can also look around at the context and see something else going on. We could point out the idea that in that culture, in that day, women were not educated. They were not given opportunities for education. So the statement, let a woman learn, was radical. It starts out that, let a woman learn. Now, for a culture that says women don't have opportunities to learn, they need to just be in the home and take care of the home. Don't you see, let a woman learn is a lifting statement. That women will rise with that statement. But it would also be true if we said, if somebody doesn't know, they have, they've just entered class, is it a good idea for them to be loud in class? No. Like, sit, learn quietly until you catch up. You have not had the opportunities that men have had. Come and learn. But don't take over. Learn. Focus on learning. It would also make sense if women had not been given opportunities to learn that they shouldn't be teaching, right? Have you ever tried to teach something that you don't know? That's the worst. You feel like a fraud because you are. So in this context... If a woman was going to stand up, having not learned, she would be a fraud. And I think Paul is protecting her. I think Paul is protecting the church. I think all of that is going on. So I'm not going to permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man because I don't want her to be a fraud. I want her to learn. And if she's got a question, rather than like disrupting the flow and the course of all things being taught... Why don't you go home and ask your husband? Because he, he has had those opportunities, and he can answer, answer those. It's not a put-down, put-you-in-your-place statement. It's a, I want you to rise the right way. Now, you can say, because this goes back to Genesis, that this is one of those transcultural, trans-time, universal truths. You can make that argument. 
I'm just not convinced that you have to. I think there's a lot more going on. There's also in the context that Paul is speaking into the truth that there was a group rising of women who worshipped Artemis, who was like all woman power and dominance. And as they learned, they started to take on that mindset that women were called to be dominant. And Paul says, whoa, ho, ho, ho. That's, that's not where we're going. And he goes back to creation and he says, because we were created together. There's no dominance here. A woman should not be dominant over a man. That's the word authority that people are still like. It's the only time it's used in the New Testament. We're guessing sort of, but if you look at cultural language of the day, that word had a tendency to lean toward dominance. Like women, I do not permit a woman to be dominant over a man because we weren't made that way. We were made to be together. We were made to be united. So stop beating down others. That's not the point. The point is unity. He also uses this word quiet, which some translations use uh, or say silent. I want a woman to learn silently, and I want her to be quiet in the church, right? Silent in the church. Be quiet. But we don't like totally hold on to that. We have women worship leaders, and we have women teaching our kids. So it's like they can lead us in worship, and they can like teach our kids and lead them astray. But um, <laughs> there's some tension here, right? But not the men. You can't lead us astray. That's not, is that the position that men want to take? Like, it's okay to lead the kids astray, but you won't get me. Like, come on. There's something more going on here, I think. You could also, back in context, nine verses earlier, I think, to 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2, where he says, first of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and for, who are, uh, for all who are in high positions, that we may lead peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. That's the same word, quiet. That we would leave silent lives. That we would lead quiet lives. And then he goes and applies it later to women, but he just applied it to all of us. So we're called to lead quiet lives. What he's saying is not like wound up, tense, uh, ready to blow up and bite others or saying things that are ahead of ourselves or trying to project things or trying to uh, uh, act as if we know everything. Quiet, at peace. We are all called to that and women are called to that too. It's like he doubles down on women. Maybe there was something going on, right? Does that mean that we're not all called to live quiet lives? No, we are. He just said it. So we should all be quiet and we should, nobody should talk in church? I don't get that. A couple of verses forward in 1 Timothy 2, 8 and 9, he says, I desire that in every place the men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. 
Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire. So we say we love the Bible, and we do. And we take the Bible literally, and we do, where it's intended to be taken literally, and where it applies for all time for all people. But any braided hair in here? No? Good, because you'd have to leave. Any gold? Any pearls? Guys, when we were worshiping, did you have your hands up? It's a form of prayer. Didn't do that. Well, why not? If we believe the Bible, we're not doing these things because we accept that these are cultural applications. So if we're going to do that in one place and then yet say in this other place, that's not for us, we have, to, we have to be real clear on why we're doing that. I have a hard time with that, honestly. I have a really hard time with that. I'm not saying it's not the case. People who are much wiser and stronger and more intelligent than me and follow Jesus wholeheartedly can make a case that this applies today. And I respect them. But people who are a lot wiser and stronger and follow Jesus wholeheartedly than I do, also make a different case that these don't apply today. And I'm not going to be able to stand up here today and say definitively this way or that way. Quite honestly, I don't entirely know what's going on here. I don't think we always do. I think God calls us to follow him with what we've received. Follow him with what we've understood and follow him where we think he's leading. I wish it was more clear. I really don't think it is perfectly crystal clear. I will say, we want to operate in the five-fold gifts at Damascus Road Church. We want apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. All of us. The elders are unanimous in this. We want the church to rise. All of us. And so if God has put this in you, if he's wired you in a certain way, we want you to use it in the church. When it comes to the gifts of the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, the pastor, and the teacher, the church needs to rise. So specifically, here's how we're going to walk this out. We have not had a woman preach at Damascus Road in the common era of our church. And we're going to change that next week. Women can teach. If you know powerful female teachers, it is a gift and it is a blessing. And we don't want to shut that down anymore. Starting next week, I cannot wait for us to learn from Marlene. Some of you know her. She is a gift. And I cannot wait for what happens in us as we open this up as a church. We have not arrived. We are growing. For some of you, this is painfully slow and not enough. And I will, I'm, 
I, I'm okay with the tension there. We will take steps and we will grow as we follow Jesus, as we follow what we believe the Spirit is leading. We believe that the Spirit is stirring in the church here at Damascus Road. And I'm excited to walk into that. We, the church, all rise. You may be uncomfortable with this, and that's okay. It's okay to be uncomfortable. I want you to ask questions. I really do. I don't want to be like confrontational in saying, if you have a problem, come and talk to me. If you have a problem, if you have questions, ask, talk, work that out. Ask a woman what she's thought for a long time. Maybe she's comfortable with it. Maybe she hasn't. Maybe this is like uh, opening up a present for her that's been too long in coming. Ask. Ask questions and listen. Lean in with grace. And I want you to be met with grace in that. We need unity. Unity builds us up together. Ultimately, it leads us to something more. If we go back to where we started in Romans 15 this morning, it says, Romans 15, 5 and 6 says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Unity isn't about our comfort. It isn't ultimately for our fulfillment or our happiness, or our ease. Our unity brings glory to the Father, and our unity shines like a beacon in a world of easy alliances that are easily broken. We can disagree, and yet do we value? And do we support one another? We shine so much light when we do that, and it points to the Father. Damascus wrote, I'm... I'm so excited about what God is doing in us. We have differences, and the differences make us stronger. United with one voice that highlights the good news of Jesus Christ more and more and more, we are becoming one as Damascus Road Church. And we are one with uh, like the greater universal church. We're not alone. We follow Jesus with the rest of the church in our city and around the world. And I want us to live in this unity. I want to stop here. And I just want to ask women, if you're willing, would you stand up? I want to pray for you. Because while I I say... We, the church, all rise. What I also understand is that for a long time, the church hasn't let you. I want to pray for you and for us. We could step into that together. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the unity that you live out. Father, Son, and Spirit, that you are different and yet you are united. 
And I pray more and more and more that we as a church would mirror that kind of unity, that we would recognize our differences and yet lift one another up. That we as the church would all rise. And right now, Jesus, we thank you especially for our women, for our girls, whom you love as daughters of yours. And we say, we want to treat them the way you see them. We want them to rise. We want them to walk out what you have put inside them. And we don't want to hold them back. Would you help us as a church to be faithful to that? To be faithful to follow you to be faithful, to cling to your word, to understand what you've given us. And when things aren't crystal clear, give the courage to do what we think you're leading us to do. We thank you for these gifts standing in our midst. We pray that you would um, move in them and through them powerfully as we the church all rise. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.